0: Good morning, Tess, we good? There we go, all right. (laughs) All right, our text this morning is going to be in Titus chapter 3, starting at verse uh, verse 1. I'm going to take a page out of uh, Brother Steve's book and uh, ask that we all stand uh, in honor of reading of God's word. Titus, chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray. to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Lord, help us to know you more. Help us to see you more clearly, and to follow you more passionately. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So, what we're doing this morning uh, is parachuting into a text. And uh, one of the things that is inherently dangerous about doing this is that we're, we're jumping into a conversation or a, uh, some sort of communication and we don't know anything about what led up to it, what's after it, we don't, we don't have a context for, for what we're reading. Um, and, and there's some danger in that. Uh, D.A. Carson says, uh, a text without context is a pretext for a proof text. Um, <laughs> it's a funny way of saying that we have a tendency to take things out of its context and make it mean something it was never meant to mean or something that it's really not saying. Um, a great example of this is: uh, How many of you have heard the the verse quoted? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. D- do do any of you know that that has nothing to do with winning a sports game? <laughs> it, it has nothing to do with uh, you know closing that deal. Uh, it really has to do with you know how to live a godly life under persecution. With with and without and having and not having and it has to do with trusting in God's grace, nothing to do with with that buzzer beater at the end of the game. But we make it mean things. We take it, we cut, we paste, we put it on our meme and we post it to Facebook and and we use it as a, as a defense for for something it doesn't mean. Um, it's dangerous. So so to we need to prevent that. Our our goal is to understand and apply God's word. Uh, is what is actually teaching. We, we want to know what it's actually saying and what it actually means, what the implications are, and how that applies. So, so to do that, I, I, I'm going to take a step back. Um, we're we're going to take five steps back from, the, from our text that we're going to be walking through to build an understanding of what's led up to it. Uh, basic questions, who, what, when, where, why. Um, it, it helps us to build the picture and see more clearly of where we're actually looking. Um, so, I'm just going to walk through it. Uh, we are start out with what? What? What is this? It's the book of Titus. Um, first, it's, it's a part of the holy, inspired, infallible, and sufficient word of God. It is, it's, it is an authoritative word of God spoken to his people. That, that, that's where we start. It's, it's, it's in the scriptures. Um, more specifically, it's part of what's, what's called the, the pastoral epistles. It's one of three letters that were written by the Apostle Paul to young pastors. So it's, it's a letter. It's, it's not really a book as we think of a book. It, it's a letter. It's, a, it's, a, it's written from someone to someone for a purpose. Um, it, it is uh, meant to be applied. It's meant to it's personal. Um, who? I mean, obviously, it's, it, we, we mentioned uh, it's, it's a letter written by Paul, um, the Apostle Paul. Uh, if you've been around church or this church or any church, really, you've heard the name Paul. Um, he was apostle, wrote big chunks of the New Testament, man of God. If you want to talk more about him, we can get into that later, but I'm pretty comfortable most of you know who Paul is. Um, Titus is somebody that we may not know as well. Um, Titus, uh, I'm just going to take uh, references, he's referenced in, in Galatians, 2 uh, Corinthians, he's, he's referenced throughout uh, many of, of Paul's letters, but I'm going to take that and kind of jam it all together for us. Um, he, he was a, a young man that was raised in a, a, a pagan home. He, he was a Greek, he was not uh, blessed like his uh, counterpart Timothy that, that had a believing mother and grandmother and had that godly heritage, he was, he was a new convert and wasn't, didn't have any of that background. Um, he was saved through Paul's missionary journeys. Um, so through the ministry of Paul, he was saved. He heard the gospel, believed, followed Christ, and, and he joined with Paul, and he spent time with him, and he lived with him and went on these, these missionary journeys with Paul, and, and they spent years together. Um, they He was discipled by Paul, he was trained by Paul. he worked with paul they they were very close um, in in the beginning of of this letter uh, Titus chapter one uh, s- verse four it, it addresses Paul addresses Titus specifically as my true child in a common faith uh, he He was a son he he looked at him as as his as, as a spiritual son that he was fond and tender and nurturing. He wanted to see the best for. Um, he, it was a, a tender and loving relationship. When, uh, th- this letter was most likely written between Paul's first and second imprisonment. Um, if you want to read more about that, you can read through Acts. That helps kind of create a picture. Um, it, it's the early 60s to mid-60s A.D., um, in the world at that time, that was really when, when persecution of the Christian church um, started to ramp up. Uh, this is when Rome began to, uh, to persecute purposely this sect of, they called it the sect of Judaism, known as, as the Christians. Um, it was a time where in 65 AD, uh, Nero began the first explicit persecution of the Christians, um, it, it, so it was an uncomfortable time. It, it was a time where, where meeting like this was not an option. Uh, people were, were not meeting publicly. People were not able to gather in, in, in areas like this without persecution. Um, and it was beginning to grow more and more uh, tenuous during this time. Um, and then the big question, which uh, I, I, we're going to spend a little bit of time on, is why? Why did Paul write this letter to Titus? Um, I I want us to turn to the beginning of of this letter, uh, starting at chapter 1, verse 1. Paul explains where he's at and why right off the bat. He doesn't want it to be mysterious. He doesn't want people to, he doesn't want Titus to not get why he's writing this letter. Um, He says, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect, And their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. So right off the bat, he gives three basic reasons that are all kind of correlated and tied together. Um, And and I want to go through those just because it it really builds the context for where we're going. Uh, The the first is uh, for the sake, so that's giving us the hint that this is why, of the faith of God's elect. Um, we we got to deal with the e word. Uh, you know, a few weeks ago, Josh dealt with the, the, the p word, the pre, the, the uh, predestination word, and you know it's awkward, and you know people don't like to talk about it. We've got another one here. It's the e word. It's elect. It, it people can people struggle with that. Some people don't understand it, um, and here Paul doesn't explain it here. But basically, the word means exactly what we would say it means today. When we elect a uh, somebody into public office, we're voting. We we give we we choose who is who we want. Um, in the same way, that's what it means. God's elect. It's God's chosen. God chose. There's one vote. God chooses. It's as simply as I can put it. Um, but that's not really the point of what we're doing. But this is it builds the context of this is written to God's people. This is written for the sake of the faith of God's elect. For God's people, for those that are chosen by God, it's written for their faith. He doesn't explain what he means by that here, but he he wants us to know that it's for the sake of the faith of God's people. The second point was, the knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. I, I want to point out it's the knowledge of the truth, not a truth, not your truth, not my truth, no postmodern relativistic truth. It is a specific truth. Um, this truth, he, again, he doesn't explain, but he does say that it's truth that's in accordance with godliness. Uh, accordance just means that it's connected, it's bound, it's they're 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 not separable. It's the truth, the the knowledge of the truth that is connected to godliness, and, and then his third third point of why he's writing is in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. So all of this is based on a trusting in the nature of God and salvation. So so this is all tied together in saying for God's people trusting in God who is the one who saves that their knowledge of the truth would accord with with godliness this is why I'm writing this is the purpose of my writing this is what I want to achieve out of this Um, as a side note but I think it's important to see is we know this is a letter to a young pastor but uh, if for anybody that has any experience reading uh, the different letters of, uh, that Paul has written, the, the different writings of Paul, we see uh, a lot of explanation. We, Steve spoke about this a little bit last week. There's a lot of uh, imperatives and indicatives. There's a, there's a lot of truth claims and actions that are correlated. Imperative just means a, a, an action, a command, so a, so a statement that requires something. It's action-based. And then imperatives I'm sorry, indicatives are truth-based statements. So there's, there's a lot of that throughout Paul's writing, and in like, if we look at Ephesians or Galatians or Romans, when he gives those imperatives, he explains a lot. He spends time developing. He really draws out this is what is the truth and why. But in, in this letter, not so much. I, I mean, just in this first, first couple sentences, we see things of... The, the eternality of God, the, God's electing grace, we, we see uh, the, the immutability of God, we see all, all these deep doctrines that, I mean, you spend a, a, se- like a whole semester on these in seminary, and he just references them in passing. Um, that, that shows that there's, from a relational standpoint, that, that there's, these conversations have already been had. He's not trying to explain what election is to Titus. He already knows. He's, he, he's not trying to explain how God is eternal and how God's sovereign decrees from before the ages works. He doesn't have to because he was, he's had those conversations. There, there's a, uh, that, that relationship is already there. So as we look at this, we see that Paul is, is explicit in in his uh, desire for why he's writing and and then he goes into uh, a whole two chapters basically of imperatives he he basically spends the next the, the rest of chapter 1 and almost all of chapter 2 really focusing on do's and don'ts this is You need to appoint elders. You need to make sure that they understand what the qualifications are. These are the qualifications. You need to tell these people to do this. You need to tell these people to do this. You need to make sure that these people aren't doing this. And, and we're, our goal isn't to go through all those things, but it, it's very directive. It's very yes, no, do this, don't. It's, it's imperative. Is this is what you need to do. And then he gets to the end of chapter 2, and he, he reels it back in and, and ties it back together to what his purpose is, and he restates his purpose in a different way in verse 13, chapter 2, verse 13, saying, "'Waiting for our blessed hope, "'the appearing of the glory of our great God "'and Savior, Jesus Christ, "'who gave himself for us "'to redeem from all lawlessness "'and to purify himself a people for his own possession "'who are zealous for good works.'" Same thing, different orders. He's worried about God's people, he wants to make sure they're built up. He that they are that they are God's people, people for his own possession. That they would be, that these people would be zealous for good works. So, so this builds the context. This shows the who, what, when, where's why's. And now we can get into our text. So now we can start. So my time starts now, right, Steve? Yeah, okay, good. All right. <laughs> Okay, so verse 1 and 2 of chapter 3. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. In one breath, one sentence, Paul shoots out Rapid fire, six different imperatives. Take a deep breath, spit it out. (laughs) This is what you need to do. And i I got to be honest, I feel like it's a machine gun pointed at me. I, I feel like as I'm looking at these things, Paul tells Titus to remind them to do, do, don't, do, don't, do. And I'm looking at these things, and I'm convicted I see things that I'm not doing, that I should, or things that I should be doing that I'm not. To speak evil of no one? That hurts. To avoid quarreling? To be gentle? What do I do with this? I I, I feel wounded. I, I feel convicted. And, and I think in, in the nature of Paul's writing, he, he, he shoots these things out and then he goes from that imperative, those, that rapid fire of imperatives, back to an indicative. He, he switches gears and goes back to the truth as, as the, the, the reasoning why. And he says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. This is who we were, people. This is how Bible describes us. This is how the Word of God describes us as slaves to our passions and pleasures, we're slaves to sin. Before Christ, before we are saved, we are slaves to sin. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. He saved us not because of works done by us, not by anything we've done, not because I'm smarter than other people and figured it out, not because my great and amazing humbleness, not because my humility is so much more humility than everybody else, not, not because of anything that we can, can muster up as a reason for why I am saved. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. We think of being a slave, and in and, and our, our minds today, I think, just because it's a context of our country and our nation and our history, it typically immediately goes to, you know, 17th and 19th century American slavery with, with shackles on our wrists and around our necks. And we, we're being dragged against our will to do things against our will. And, and there's, there's a, a level of truth in that we're bound. We're, we're in, we are enslaved. But I want to point to two things. The, the the first thing is who's the master the master of of who of when we as slaves we have a master and that master is said to be various passions and pleasures we're not going against our will we're going with our will you could take the chains off and we're still going that way We want it, we pursue it, we desire it. Outside of Christ, this is who we were. Our passions and our pleasures were our God and our master, and we pursued that. But God saved us, not because we were turning towards him, not because we were pursuing him, but because of his mercy. He saw us in this state of rebellion and hatred towards him, And he had compassion on us. He had mercy towards us. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. We didn't do anything for it. But God's mercy compelled him to save us. How did he do it? By the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Regeneration is, is an uh, interesting word. Um, it, it's used a lot in theological circles. It's, it sounds harder than it is. Re, again, to, and then generate is to make. So God remakes us by the renewal of the Spirit. It's the idea of being born again. We are remade. We are made new. We are not what we used to be. We are now a new creation in Christ by the power of the Spirit. This is how God saved us. Not by us, not by our works, but through the Holy Spirit He makes us new. Whom He poured out richly through Christ Jesus, our Savior. So that being justified by His grace we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We are justified by his grace, by the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. We are made right with God. And and if you're, you're not looking too closely, you might miss this, but this is a beautiful thing where we see the triune nature of God working in our salvation. We see that it's God the Father that elects us before time, We see that it's the life, death, and resurrection of Christ that justifies us. And we see it's the Holy Spirit that regenerates us and makes us new. All the distinctions of God working together to bring us out of our slavery and into being heirs with Christ. We're we're no longer the rebel. We are now a son or daughter. As Christians, we're, we're no longer under God's wrath. We are now His child. I, I, I want us to understand how important that is, that this idea of being an heir with Christ is a new identity. It's a new way of understanding who we are. It's a new way of understanding where we belong what we should do, how we should live, everything is now seen through this new light of being an heir with Christ and no longer a slave to our passions, no longer a slave to seeking pleasure. We're different now. But like Paul does, he he doesn't let it sit there. He he doesn't let the truth just set as the truth and resting in God's grace. He then moves back into the imperative. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works, These things are excellent and profitable, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels of the law. They are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and